You're watching CNN. I'm Max Foster in London. Ukraine says its troops have recaptured several settlements near Kharkiv in the east of the country. A video geolocated by CNN shows signs of a chaotic Russian retreat. Uh, the Ukrainian military says Russia is redeploying troops to the north near its own border. The armed forces of our state provided us all with good news from the Kharkiv region. The occupiers are gradually being pushed away from Kharkiv. Well, despite ongoing fighting, it appears Russia is failing to make much progress in the east. That's backed up by videos like this one, uh, in which Ukrainian forces claim they destroyed a Russian tank near Kharkiv. Top U.S. intelligence officials believe President Vladimir Putin is preparing for a prolonged war in Ukraine. The U.S. Director of National Intelligence says Russian failures could usher in this dangerous new phase. The uncertain nature of the battle, which is developing into a war of attrition, combined with the reality that Putin faces a mismatch between his ambitions and Russia's current conventional military capabilities, likely means the next few months could see us moving along a more unpredictable and potentially escalatory trajectory. That top official told Congress that the intelligence community believes that Putin still has ambitions beyond claiming the Donbass. The Donbass covers the Luhansk and Donetsk regions that are currently the the focus of Russian offensives. Uh, More American aid worth tens of billions of dollars could soon be on their way to Ukraine. Meanwhile, Uh, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a new package worth about $40 billion to help shore up Ukraine's defences and address humanitarian needs. President Zelensky thanked Washington for its support. President Biden has urged Congress to act fast to pass the bill before the current defence aid runs out at the end of the month. Uh, The bill now needs to be approved by the Senate. Scott McLean joins us from Lviv. Um, They need all of this kit. They need the funding, don't they? Because Russia is escalating the type of weapons it's using as well. Well, the Ukrainians, Max, say that uh, when it comes to equipment, they're at a position where the Russians aren't going to win the equipment war. That's how much foreign military aid has managed to get inside of the country. Uh, For instance, the Pentagon says that of the 90 howitzers that were promised Ukraine, the howitzers are these artillery Um, these artillery systems, sort of modern-day cannons. Of the 90 that were pledged, 89 are already within the country, and the deputy defense minister says that they are already well on their way to moving toward the front lines. And you mentioned earlier the situation in Kharkiv, where the city itself is uh, relatively quiet, or at least it has been in recent days, but the real fighting is happening in the towns and villages outside of Kharkiv, and you mentioned some of it already, but the Ukrainians say that in some areas north of the city, they actually have fighters from the Azov Regiment. This is the really one of the most fiercest uh, fighters within the Ukrainian military. And they're just a few miles, a few kilometers really from the Russian border. And the Russians have, according to the Ukrainians, built up a presence of troops on the Russian side of the border in anticipation of the Ukrainians actually reaching that border at some point. You, you showed that video earlier showing one example of a hasty Russian retreat. Ukraine, though, says it's far too early for civilians to actually start going back to these areas because, of course, they're still within artillery range. And we've seen over and over again in this war, Max, that when the Russians don't make a lot of progress on the ground, they resort to heavy shelling of some of these civilian areas in hopes that that will eventually force Ukrainian troops back.
Uh, Scott and Lviv, thank you. Well, from the offensive on the ground to the impact globally and economically, Ukraine is suspending some Russian gas flows to Europe, blaming Moscow for diverting supplies. Germany and other EU countries are key customers affected by that move. Anna Stewart is on the story for us. Take us through exactly what's been happening then. We're talking about these particular supplies going from Russia through Ukraine into Europe. Yes, so as everyone knows, Ukraine is a major transit country for Russian gas heading into Europe, and there have been plenty of disputes in years gone past. This one is regarding a certain transit point, and we can show you where it is on a map. It's called Sukhranivka, and it's in the Luhansk region, which, of course, uh, is Russian-occupied. Now, according to Ukraine's gas grid operator... There has been Russian interference, they say, at this transit point, including diverting some of the gas. Now, they have said that this poses a major security issue to the whole gas grid network, so they have suspended it. Now, this transit point takes around a third of all the Russian gas that goes via Ukraine through to Europe. So in that sense, it is quite significant. Gazprom deny there has been any interference here at all. As of today, Russia is sending around 25% less gas via Ukraine to Europe than it was yesterday. So currently, is it making up that shortfall of disruption? Max? We're looking at that map of the pipelines. There are several, aren't there? So surely the Russians could divert it through a different pipeline so it can still get to Europe? Lots of different solutions are here. The one that Ukraine points to, and we'll keep that map up, is the Zudza transit point to the west. They say they could simply re-divert the volumes of gas that go to the disputed one through there. Again, we have a difference of opinion here. Gazprom says that is technically impossible. Ukraine has then refuted that and said not only is it possible, but it's been done before. We've spoken to an oil analyst. They believe over half of the volume of gas that goes through the disputed transit point could go through there. And Max, there are other pipelines as well. The volume of gas we are talking about in terms of the European overall pie from, from Russian gas is about 8%. Uh, there are many pipelines that run through Europe. The biggest, of course, is actually Nord Stream 1, which runs from Russia straight to Germany under the sea. Uh, there's capacity and multiple routes that could be used. Natural gas prices, oil prices were higher today. If this had been a few weeks ago, I would actually expect a bigger market reaction. But currently, the EU is trying to wean itself off Russian energy. It's working on LNG orders from other sources. It's trying to fill up its gas storage coffers. I think that's why we're seeing quite a muted response, really. That could change, though, if this became a broader spat with more pipelines in more areas of Europe being involved. Max. Okay, Anna, thank you. Uh, The war in Ukraine and the rising cost of energy are two major factors contributing to higher inflation across the globe. Brand new numbers show U.S. consumer inflation still hovering near 40-year highs. CPI numbers rising to 8.3% last month, year over year. That's a bit slower than the price rise in March. Uh, The CPI also easing month over month too, but these uh, numbers uh, were higher than expected and offer little comfort to anyone hoping to see signs of peak inflation in the US. Rachel Solomon joins me now from uh, New York. As I say, the numbers were slightly down when you look at the increases. Just take us through what's happening here because it can be confusing and we mustn't relax just yet, as I was saying. Not yet. Yeah, there's a bit of everything in this report. Let's start with the positive, which was that inflation did ease. It moderated a bit. Uh, First time we're seeing that since August. So perhaps some good news there. 
The not-so-good news, however, is that it didn't ease as much as most economists were expecting. Let's take a look at the report. You can see last month, food prices rose about nine-tenths of a percent. Energy fell 2.7 percent, and core inflation, which strips away the more volatile categories like food and energy, that rose 0.6 percent. That is twice the amount we saw last month. When we look at sort of areas for the largest uh, increases last month in the report, uh, things like shelter, airline fares, and new vehicles, the largest contributors. Uh, When we look at some areas that we actually saw some declines. Apparel and used cars and trucks all declined over the month. Now, Max, of course, the question that everyone is trying to answer is, have we reached peak inflation? Unclear. Some, like Deutsche Bank, believe that the report and the easing that we saw today could be the beginning of a a gradual move lower in coming months. Others say not so fast. One month, one data point does not a trend make. Not also going to be a cause for celebration for consumers, most likely, because, uh, yeah, inflation is still hovering at 40-year highs. Uh, Things are very expensive, and the president knows that. U.S. President Joe Biden taking uh, the time yesterday to address the public and saying that fighting inflation is his number one domestic priority. So, yes, we saw some gradual easing, but not nearly as much as economists, most economists were expecting, Max. Could this play out in the markets today? How are the futures looking? Max, in fact, it already has. Just before the numbers came out, the Dow was up 275 points before, uh, of course, the open pre-market. But it pretty much lost all of those gains when the numbers crossed. So we're already seeing this play out in the market. Of course, there's so much sort of jitteriness and concern about how the Fed is going to fight inflation and how severe and hawkish it will have to be to bring inflation closer to its target. So we're already seeing futures uh, across the board negative. Of course, you know, the markets have an open and there is a long way until markets close, but it's already been uh, a tough week for the markets. We'll we'll remain to see how it uh, all plays out today, Max. Uh, Rahel, thank you. I know you'll be watching it very closely. Thank you. Uh, To uh, China now, where strict COVID-19 lockdowns are starting to take an economic toll. Car sales dropped 48% in April as factories and showrooms were forced to close. Uh, Tesla's China sales were down 98%. And exports from its Shanghai plant dropped to zero. Selena Wang's following that for us. And that's because, you know, is it because they can't get the parts or the people or what is it? Yeah, Max, that monthly decline you said is a record decline. This is the world's largest automobile market. And what those numbers point to is the impact these strict lockdowns in China are having on the economy, on supply chain disruptions, on consumer spending. And the auto market is not immune to that. Across China, at least 31 cities are under some form of lockdown, impacting up to 214 million people. And of the automakers in China, Tesla got hit the hardest. It sold only about 1,500 cars in the mainland last month. That is down 98% from March. Its production in the company also fell dramatically. It fell more than 80%. Now, Shanghai has been under the strict lockdown for more than a month. And Shanghai is the heart of manufacturing in China. Many automakers have big production facilities there, including Tesla. And last month, Tesla had to close down its factory there for several weeks. Only recently did it start getting back up and running. But according to a new report from Reuters, it has yet hit another snag. And Tesla in China has had to again temporarily halt production because of snags with suppliers. But it's not just Tesla. 
max. There are lots of automakers in China that are really hurting as a result of these lockdowns, including Toyota and Nissan. And with no clear end in sight to these lockdowns, this pain to the automakers, this dampening of consumer spending when people are locked inside, they're not out buying cars. So these numbers, they're going to continue to be painful. Okay, uh, Selena, thank you for bringing us up to date with that. Um, we're going to have a look at some other stories making headlines around the world now. Um, an Al Jazeera journalist has been fatally shot whilst covering an Israeli military operation in the West Bank. Al Jazeera and Qatar, which finances the broadcaster, say Israeli forces killed her and that no Palestinian gunmen were in the area. Israel's Prime Minister says it appeared likely uh, Shireen Abu Akhla was uh, shot by Palestinians, though. Her producer was also wounded in the attack. We'll have more on this story later on CNN. In the next few hours, Connect the World will speak to the Israeli Defence Forces and hear from a colleague and a friend of Shireen. Sri Lanka has extended a curfew until early Thursday morning after nine people were killed in violence there this week. The government's apparent mishandling of an economic crisis has sparked a month of deadly protests. Uh, the Ministry of Defence says uh, troops have been ordered to shoot anyone damaging state property or assaulting officials. Uh, just ahead, from software engineer to soldier, CNN speaks to the ordinary Ukrainians now on the front lines against Russia. For the past 77 days, Ukrainian fighters have fought the Russian military, defended their capital and forced a retreat in the north. Uh, but what makes this David and Goliath battle even more remarkable are the Ukrainian conscripts and volunteers. Just 78 days ago, they were regular people in regular jobs. Sinen Sam Kiley spoke to volunteers on the front lines in eastern Ukraine. Yeah. Oh, it's a bunny. Yeah. Bunny the tank. Yeah, so it's Bunny the tank. He's got quite a carrot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bunny's got a very big stick. This T-80 tank was built two years ago and was, until March, in the vanguard of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So down below you see an autoloader. It's also slightly modernized to shoot more like advanced and like better rounds. It can shoot guided missiles. Alex was on a sniper team when he discovered Bunny, stuck and abandoned in a field in March, eight days into Russia's assault. Within days, the tank was back in action against Russians. This is like my personal tank. I'm tank commander and tank owner. In March, he says the tank destroyed 24 Russian vehicles and two tanks. We're fighting like near resume. So here we already destroyed three or four enemy tanks like we have three confirmed and four is like not fully confirmed that it was our kill that was in the previous couple of days when russian forces tried to break through ukraine's lines in the bitter battle for the east showing like the thermal side alex isn't a professional soldier he's a software engineer who lived in the now smashed it hub of kharkiv his home has been destroyed Bunnies being serviced as the battle rages a few miles away. Burning fields encroach on the tank's hideout. The front line in Ukraine is hundreds of miles long. For many Ukrainian soldiers on this front line, there's a sense that perhaps the Russians haven't yet brought their full destructive power to bear. 
but they expect to find out this week. Russia's artillery is relentless and Putin's tanks amassing. This army of volunteers is expecting a hard Russian push. Anna's 22, she's been a soldier for a month and now she's a driver in a reconnaissance unit. There is a lot of opportunities to be killed. She just graduated from university. The thing that makes me the angriest is raped children and women. Is that something that you're afraid of happening to you? Um, I can't say that I'm afraid of something like that. I, I'm afraid to be not useful for my country, for my people. This is what being useful here means, killing Russians. Russians Anna's age. But this is a war thrust upon Ukrainians. Anna works with Vlad, a poet, author, publisher and war vet. And reconnaissance is a highly dangerous work. Have you lost many comrades, friends? Vlad said, since 2014, so many of my friends, people I knew, comrades, have died. So far, the people I came with since the beginning of the latest invasion have not died, and I'm very happy it's cool. These people are still fighting. They're already in charge of units. It's awesome. The best of the best are here. His books are dark fantasies set in this war with Russia, an all-too-rich source of material. Sam Kiley, CNN, Eastern Ukraine. The charity Save the Children is raising concerns about the trauma children are facing both in and out of Ukraine and its lasting impact on their mental health. The group is sharing drawings made by some of the nearly three million children forced to leave Ukraine since the war began. Of all the pictures, one image is being drawn again and again and its hearts coloured with crayons. Uh, simple images that speak uh, volumes. Ajanti Saripto is the president and CEO of Save the Children US and joins us now. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, talk us through some of the you, drawings, some of the themes that you've seen in the images. Then we can talk about what's behind them. Yes, thank you for highlighting this. And clearly, as always, pictures really say more than a thousand words. If you look at those drawings from children, of they are essentially of, of tanks, bombs, homes, their homes being destroyed, dead bodies lying in the street that they will have seen. So these young eyes have seen things that no child should ever see. Um, and that is clearly coming through in those drawings. And it will, and that's why we're doing that work with them, because it will also help these children um, start to pro process some of that trauma that they've experienced. Um, which is more healthy, seeing hearts with Ukrainian flags or, you know, the actual scenes that they have encountered and, you know, um, maybe coming to terms with now? Well, it's going to be a long, long process, right? And, you know, our child psychologists in the, psychologists in these centres are, are working with these kids. We're also doing play therapy to, to help them start that long journey. Uh, of processing and recovery. But as you can imagine, we are incredibly concerned, not just for the immediate life-threatening impact for children on the ground in Ukraine now, but also the longer-term impact on, the, on their mental health um, as, as this uh, war continues. Is it useful asking them to draw because these are such difficult events to talk about quite often? Yes, and we see that in many, not just in, in, in this instance, but in many of these crises across the world. Sometimes 
natural disasters, but also conflict-related disasters like this one, we, we, we get children to draw. It's something that every child uh, does um, um, you know, across the world, and it helps them put some of their experiences into, into, into words when they don't have them yet. What's been the most upsetting image that you've seen? Well, it's it's hard. There's a, a lot, and then of course we also hear the stories that they tell us in in these centres. I think, you know, an image of a young child standing beside the grave of their mother, uh, which I saw from one of our teams uh, last week, was you know is is heartbreaking. I think an image of a drawing. Uh, of a, a child, you know, drawing their own home being destroyed, and then themselves in front of it, uh, fleeing, because uh, they often, they, you know, sometimes they 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 draw themselves in these pictures is is very striking as well. So when you, you know, when one of your team are with a child in front of a picture of them, they've drawn themselves next to their mm -hmm. parents' grave. What's the next step? What do you take them to next? Well, we, we try to work with them, right? And we have a whole sort of program around this. Uh, and, and clearly this is also hard because these kids are often in, in, in transit, right? We, we, we often find, sometimes not, but quite often now in, in where the conflict is now, kids are in, in transit. So you get to see them uh, for, for, for a bit and then they, they move on. And thankfully now in a lot of European countries, these kids are going into child, you know, into child protection systems that can help them for longer. Um, but we, we help them talk it, through. We sometimes help them put into drawings what they have difficulty put into words. Um, and, and, and then we try to figure out how we can help them best. Of course, it depends on their age, what they've seen, uh, where we think they are. Are there some ages where they deal with it better? I think that's really hard to say. I, you know, and I think it's, it's almost too also too early to say, but I think, and but we've seen this in, in kids fleeing the Syrian war as well over the past 11 years. Um, no, I don't think you can say there's a, there's a better, I mean, and there is no good age to see what these, what these kids are, are mm. seeing and have seen, right? Um, it, it, but it, it does depend on their individual situation. Um, you um, involved uh, Jill Biden in this, didn't you? The first lady. Um, I mean, it must be very difficult for her to see all of this. It must have been very helpful to have her involved as well. Um, how's that helped and um, how she dealt with it all? Well, we were incredibly pleased that the First Lady took the time to, to come over on, on Mother's Day. Um, clearly, uh, Dr. Biden is an educator herself, a passionate uh, educator. She was also involved with Save the Children a couple of years ago. So she knows our work. She's seen it on the ground. And we were delighted that she had time to, to visit one of the schools that we're working with in Romania, uh, where we're helping that school uh, who has actually accepted a lot of children uh, coming over. I think about 100 kids are in that school now, um, where we're trying to also get them back into education and give them a sense of, of normality. Uh, so, so for them, uh, our staff there, our volunteers and those kids to see that interest from somebody as... Um, you, you know, uh, like the first lady has been amazing uh, for them and inspiring, and I think, and, and made them feel that they're not alone and that there is support for them. Um, and, and clearly, it has helped us here to continue to keep this issue on 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 the radar. Well, that's the concern, isn't it? Because as horrifying as all of this is, there's been a lot of it over a period of time, and you you need to raise money, you need to 
keep the resourcing. And this is a massively long term project for you dealing with long term trauma. Uh, what more do you want from the world? I mean, is it just a case of, uh, you know, keeping the awareness so the resources keep coming in? There is that, you know, and it's twofold, right? One is, yes, keep the awareness. Uh, this is a long-term uh, rebuild and recovery process, uh, and it will need to happen long after the camera. The cameras have gone, and 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 at some point, hopefully, they also the hostility. Look, first and foremost, the hostilities need to cease. Um, then we need to have access to all of the areas in Ukraine, uh, alongside working with people who have fled okay. Ukraine, uh, so that people. To feel safe to turn back and then of course yes funding needs to continue for ukraine it's been extraordinarily good uh, across yeah. the world not just in the united states but of course we're worried about other crises that are exacerbated also by increasing wheat prices because of this conflict so we're now seeing hunger and famine spike up across many countries and that also needs resourcing Okay, I appreciate you spending time with us and taking time out from your very important work. Ajanti Saripto from the Save the Children, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Welcome back, I'm Max Foster in London. This is the opening bell sounding on Wall Street. Uh, US stocks have opened lower, the Nasdaq and the S&P reversing course after Tuesday's modest gains. All this after another disappointing read on inflation. Uh, The US reporting that consumer prices rose 8.3% in April, year over year. That's a bit lower than last month's increase, but still hotter than expected. Uh, The month-over-month data were higher than expected too. The numbers showing consumer inflation still hovering near 40-year highs. Matt Egan joins me with more. So is it all about inflation today or what else are you looking at? Yeah, Max, it really is all about inflation because that remains the number one problem for the economy and really for financial markets as well and probably for politicians in Washington. Um, And I think that there is a mixed bag from this report. I mean, the good news is that um, inflation has cooled off a bit, as you mentioned, 8.3% year over year in April, backing away from 40-year highs. This is the first time we've seen a deceleration since last August. The bad news, though, is that it really didn't back away all that much. Prices still rose by 8.3%. You know, expectations were for for less. And as you can see on your screen, there were still record price spikes on everything from baby food, restaurants, hardware, new trucks, men's suits, and core inflation, which is really what the Fed looks at. That excludes food and energy. That actually accelerated month over month, more than expected. Now, no one on Main Street is going to be celebrating the fact that uh, you know inflation is still above eight um, uh, percent. No one on Wall Street either. It was really interesting to see stock futures were uh, modestly higher this morning, and then that report came out, and within minutes we saw Dow futures drop um, about five hundred points from where they were trading. As you can see, markets opening up uh, just slightly higher. I think that's because there's really nothing about today's report that suggests the Federal Reserve is going to you know, dramatically dial back its war against inflation. It's still going to be raising interest rates for the next few months. It could still be doing these uh, half a percentage point interest rate increases. And uh, that eventually could pose some risk for the economy as, as borrowing costs keep going up. That's going to slow down growth. And so those worries about an eventual recession in the United States uh, next year or in 2024, I don't really think that's going away either. So kind of a mixed uh, batch of numbers uh, this morning, Max. 
Okay, Matt, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Harley-Davidson shares were up today. Uh, Profits fell last quarter, squeezed by supply chain issues, the global chip shortage and inflation. Uh, The company whose Livewire division is launching an electric bike says there is high demand, though, and that's driving up revenue. The CEO spoke to Richard last night. This is a fantastic brand, Harley-Davidson, fantastic brand. We are now standing up the second brand with Livewire that is going public sometime in June at the New York Stock Exchange. There's a lot of exciting things happening, despite the backdrop, which is certainly challenging. Do you think you'll still public in June? I mean, the SPAC, the SPAC method is, is slowly going out of flavor as long as the market is in such turmoil. Uh, I mean, I don't expect you to necessarily tell me what you're going to do, but are you rethinking that plan to float and SPAC in June? No, we're not rethinking it, and we're doing this for the right reasons. Livewire is a fantastic new brand. It's built on the lineage and part of the lineage of Harley-Davidson. We want to set it off as a separate entity, separate company, that it is independent with an independent board listed at the New York Stock Exchange, and we see a great, great opportunity. We launched our new bike today, uh, the Del Mar, and before the presentation was over, we sold our limited edition, so within 18 minutes, there was a strong demand and we sold 100 bikes uh, that are going to deliver next year. So there's definitely demand out there and we believe that a pure electric play uh, that can lead the industry uh, is, is something that the market wants and uh, that we will give to the market and we will be the ones that shape the electric two-wheel space in the future. Uh, the chief executive, um, Harley Davidson there. Uh, Speaking of supply chain issues as well, chip shortages as well, uh, Taiwan, a a leader, a world leader in semiconductor manufacturing, getting a spotlight on its unique role in global tech. This comes as U.S. intelligence chiefs warn that Taiwan will face an acute threat of takeover by China uh, by the end of the decade. It's our view that uh, they are working hard to effectively put themselves into a position in which their military is capable of taking Taiwan over our intervention. Uh, Will Ripley, live for us in Taipei. Uh, Break this down for us then. How worried should we be? Well, certainly here on the island of Taiwan, they are taking this threat seriously as they have for decades since, uh, you know, mainland China has claimed the communist rulers in mainland China have claimed this island as their own for more than 70 years since the end of China's civil war. Uh, But this is now a time, according to U.S. intelligence, that China is building an army that just might be big enough not only to defeat Taiwan, which would happen fairly quickly, but also defeat potentially intervention by the United States. And that is what makes Taiwan's soft power so crucial max their semiconductor industry a world leader and it's so valuable that it might actually experts say motivate countries to rally in the island of taiwan's defense taiwan's first line of defense from a chinese invasion billions spent on missiles new warships and submarines an upgraded fleet of fighter jets expanded training for reserve soldiers all of it dwarfed by the mainland's massive military. China's defense budget, 17 times bigger than Taiwan. Experts say the island's best defense, its biggest weapon against China, is technology so small you need a microscope. Super tiny, super powerful semiconductors. This tiny tech powers products you probably use every day. 
Taiwan produces about 70% of the world's semiconductor chips, most of them made by TSMC, Asia's most valuable company, making chips for companies around the world like Apple and Intel. Experts warn any disruption to Taiwan's chip supply could paralyze global production, impacting almost everyone. People like to say, well, Taiwan should be defended by virtue of it being a democracy. This is oftentimes too abstract if there is war or invasion in the Taiwan Strait, and immediately the price of computers would increase, your cell phones would become uh, more expensive. It helps people make that self-serving but emotional connection with a society that otherwise would be abstract to them. Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine is raising questions about the future of Taiwan, a self-governing democracy claimed but never controlled by Beijing's communist rulers. But what makes Taiwan different from Ukraine, right, is the economic leverage. Taiwan is much more relevant to the global economy than Ukraine. That is true. Even China relies on chips from Taiwan. More than 50 percent of the island's exports to the mainland, semiconductors. China is Taiwan's top trading partner. So what does it mean economically for Taiwan and China if there was some sort of conflict to break out? It will be disastrous, not only for Taiwan, not only for China, but also for the U.S. and EU and everybody. Chinese President Xi Jinping has vowed to reunify with Taiwan at any cost. Taiwan's chip industry could make the cost of any invasion far too steep. Just imagine if you had to wait more than a year to get your new iPhone or you had to wait even longer than that to get a laptop. That is the scenario that experts say would be very possible, uh, highly likely, if there was any sort of disruption to Taiwan semiconductors. And that is actually something that the leadership here in Taipei bring up when people draw comparisons between what's happening in Ukraine and Taiwan. Uh, They're quick to point out the strategic role of the semiconductor industry. It's vital technology even used in weapons. Uh, Max. And so, you know, the global supply shortage uh, is actually prompting some countries now to take steps to try to break themselves away from their dependence on Taiwan because so many of the chips are made here. But that would take many years. So at least for the short term, that soft power that Taiwan has is a lot of leverage. Uh, What they have to do, experts say, is to stay also continue to grow militarily as well. Yeah, it's fascinating. Will, thank you for joining us from Taipei. Uh, In the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. has claimed victory in Monday's presidential election. According to an unofficial preliminary count, he got more than twice as many votes as his closest rival. The son of the Philippines' former dictator called it a win for democracy and asked to be judged on his actions, not his ancestors. CNN's Ivan Watson has more. Judge me not by my ancestors, but by my actions. Uh, Those are the final words of a short statement declaring victory coming from the presumptive winner of the presidential elections that were held in the Philippines on Monday. And and that uh, assumed winner is Ferdinand Marcos Jr., known by his nickname Bong Bong, a statement released by his spokesperson declaring victory in that election, the, the preliminary results show a massive lead, uh, more than twice the votes of the presumptive second place 
candidate in the election. Uh, and Bong Bong is, of course, the son of the ousted former dictator of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos Sr., who was forced to flee the country in 1986 in the face of a people power movement, had ruled under martial law for nearly a decade, had an atrocious human rights record, and is still being investigated for the alleged embezzlement of up to $10 billion worth of uh, government and Philippines assets. Now, Bong Bong ran under somewhat of a nostalgia ticket with the slogan, Rise Again. He uh, was very short on details about his platform, but his campaign message appeared to have worked. He does seem to be on the verge of winning a much bigger electoral mandate than, than any other presidential candidate has really seen in generations. Now, the presumptive second place candidate uh, still has not conceded defeat, is going to hold a rally on Friday uh, thanking her supporters. There are concerns uh, and protests about uh, voting machines that, that did not function properly uh, during the election. However, uh, the U.S. State Department spokesperson has gone on record saying that uh, there does not seem to have been uh, serious problems with this election, that it was conducted in line with international standards. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. Coming up, uh, delivering life-saving first aid to Ukraine's people and its economy. One organization's critical mission. Next. Uh, welcome back. The U.S. House of Representatives has approved an additional $40 billion in funding for Ukraine. This is a number of non-profit organizations around the world also continue to raise money to support the country. One of them is California-based Nova Ukraine. Since the Russian invasion in late February, it has raised $30 million and spent $16 million so far, providing much-needed medications, medical devices, food and other basic supplies. Joining me now is Director of Nova Ukraine, Igor Markov. Thank you for joining us. Uh, what are you finding is the most required thing right now? What are uh, your people on the ground saying they need? Uh, there are many things that are needed on the ground in Ukraine. We see a uh, very significant demand for uh, medical supplies, for food, uh, for evacuation services, uh, for basic infrastructure. We fund bomb shelters in several places. And we are listening to the people on the ground, to our volunteers and also to the refugees and to the people in need. Uh, and we are trying to adapt to the situation. And are you getting as much support as you were early on in the crisis in the war? Or are people getting fatigued with all of this fundraising, which is vital, but it's been going a long time now for, for some people? Yes, we definitely start seeing uh, a donor fatigue at the very beginning of the war. There was an outpouring of support. Uh, uh, many people contributed uh, um, at some point later, we started seeing uh, bigger donors uh, coming in with support, uh, uh, then uh, uh, corporate matching programs, 
And uh, now we're starting to, to see some corporate uh, donors, uh, which, which look specifically at what we do and uh, select projects. But overall, there is definitely a problem with donor fatigue because uh, this war has been going on for quite some time and there is really no end in sight. The problem is huge. The amount of funding, the amount of help that is needed is, is only growing. And so we are doing all that we can to adapt to uh, convince donors to help Ukraine and to uh, route the support, these funds, to the projects that have most impact. Uh, the other issue, of course, is that, um, you know, there has been a, a, a food crisis, really, um, that's been prompted by what's been happening in Ukraine and, uh, you know, the sanctions on Russia as well. So the cost of living for people in the West has gone up and that's making it more difficult for them to donate. Absolutely. We, we see um, now the reports that uh, uh, food supplies are running low in many places in Ukraine those that are hard to reach, but even those that have good connections to the West because uh, some of the shipments have decreased from, from the West in part because of prices. Uh, we saw reports uh, just in the last few days that Russia is uh, taking away grains from Ukraine, from Southern and Eastern regions uh, into Russia. It's basically stealing. Um, and, and, and so we are doing several different things to uh, uh, feed people in Ukraine and also to support producers. We support a number of small uh, kitchens in uh, different regions of Ukraine, uh, Kyiv, Kharkiv, uh, in the south, in, in, in Odessa, in Mykolaiv, where uh, people are basically fed uh, uh, breakfast and, and lunch in the streets. Uh, we support uh, volunteer groups that uh, prepare food baskets and deliver uh, to disabled people, to the elderly who have difficulty leaving their apartments. And uh, we support food producers to, to make sure that uh, they remain viable and that they have the production lines running for canned meat, uh, pasta, and uh, several places that bake bread. Uh, isn't that ironic, though, that you're having to effectively import grains and basic foods into a country which up until recently was, you know, a real breadbasket for the rest of the world. It is definitely. The, the supply lines are disrupted and uh, uh, we, we, are, we are trying to adapt to the situation and, of course, trying to also make sure that these imports don't suppress uh, food producers uh, in, in Ukraine. Uh, the situation is changing. Uh, we, of course, we know the government of Ukraine is, is trying to help as much as they can. But th this is really our strength as, as a nonprofit volunteer brown organization. We can adapt to the situation on the ground uh, very quickly. OK, um, Igor Markov, really appreciate your time. Director of Nova Ukraine. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Now, next, a dramatic air scare. A passenger with no flight experience landing a plane when the pilot passes out mid-flight. Welcome back. One last look at the markets for you. U.S. stocks are now trading higher um, after the release of a hotter than expected U.S. inflation report. Today's consumer price report for April shows U.S. inflation still hovering near 40-year highs. That's bad for consumers and the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve, uh, which has begun raising interest rates in the hope of taming that inflation. Now, imagine this. You're a regular passenger on a plane. The pilot suddenly becomes incapacitated. And you're the one who has to land the aircraft. That's exactly what happened in Florida. Uh, Pete Montaigne has this incredible story. I've got a serious situation here about pilot. Uh, John, 
The voice you're hearing is not a pilot, but a passenger radioing for help. Audio captured from Live ATC details the communications between the plane, a Cessna caravan, and the control tower at Fort Pierce in Florida. Number 333, Lima Delta, Roger, what's your position? I have no idea. I see the coast of Florida in front of me, and I have no idea. Air traffic controller Robert Morgan was on break from working in the tower when his colleague said he needed to come back fast. There's a passenger flying a plane that's not a pilot and the pilot's incapacitated. So they said we need to try to help them land the plane. Morgan is a 20-year veteran controller, but also a certificated flight instructor with 1,200 hours flying experience. What was the situation with the pilot? He is incoherent. He is out. Number three, Lehman Delta, Roger, uh, try to hold the wings level and see if you can start uh, descending for me. Uh, push forward on the uh, controls and uh, descend at a very slow rate. Controller Morgan had not flown this specific airplane before, so he pulled up this photo of the layout of the instrument panel and talked the passenger through it step by step. I knew the plane's flying like any other plane. I just had to keep him calm, point him to the runway and just tell him how to reduce the power so he could descend to land. Data from FlightAware shows the flight's path. The first challenge to controllers locating the flight and pointing the passenger turned pilot to the airport. Three Lima Delta, maintain wings level and uh, just try to follow the coast, either north or southbound. We're trying to locate you. 6-4, you guys located me yet? I can't even get my nav screen to turn on. It has all the uh, information on it. You guys got any ideas on that? Number uh, three, Lima Delta, uh, Palm Beach is a, uh, he's uh, instructing me that you're uh, about 20 miles east of Boca Raton. Just continue northbound over the beach and we'll try to uh, get you some more further instructions. Morgan's instruction paid off, guiding the flight to a landing at Palm Beach. Aviation experts call it a remarkable feat that left other flights listening in stunned, including a commercial pilot waiting for takeoff. Did you say the passengers landed the airplane? That's correct. Oh my gosh, yeah, no. No, great job. No flying experience. We got a controller that worked them down, that's a flight instructor. After the landing, Morgan left the tower and went out to the ramp to meet his newest student pilot that he taught to land without ever getting in the plane. I just feel like it was probably meant to happen. What a hero and what a calm passenger. Finally, after nearly 20 years, Apple has decided to retire the iPod. Production set to halt on the iPod Touch, the only model still on shelves. The late Steve Jobs introduced the music player in 2001 uh, with the promise of holding up to 1,000 CD quality songs. Apple uh, says the spirit of the iPod lives on in all its current products, where music storage and streaming have become an essential part of software, a moment in tech history. That's it for the show. Connect the World is next. Do stay with CNN. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.